But I want to start out telling you a story. A couple of weeks ago, I was on a trip with my family, and we were staying at a pretty nice hotel in Nashville, Tennessee. And um, first problem, we had our one-and-a-half-year-old Grady with us. In hindsight, that might have been where I went wrong. But um, Grady and I had just returned from a walk down the street where, on our way back into the hotel, he had picked up two um, fist-sized rocks, one for each hand, of course, and he had just excitedly been carrying them around, and he carried them back into the hotel to show them to the hostess at the hotel who he had been befriending for the past couple of days. And they talked about them excitedly for a few minutes and compared them to many other things. And then we got on the elevator to go up to our, our room on the seventh floor. And as the doors opened and I stepped off the elevator, I heard this loud thud behind me. And when I turned around, Grady was now just holding one rock. And I panicked for a moment because I could tell what happened. There was a large space between the elevator and the floor that we had got off on. And that, now this wasn't a pebble. This wasn't a golf ball sized rock. This was a fist sized rock. Was now falling down the elevator shaft, hitting every floor between seven and one as it went. And I could hear it all. I don't know about you, but it's in moments like these that my most like primal human instincts kick in. And I wanted to run as fast as I could. And looking up to see which way I should run and how I should grab him, I saw right in front of me this video camera. <laughs> right, pointed right at the elevator doors. And I knew that we had been caught. Because in my wild imagination, this fancy elevator gets stuck and they find a rock between the floors and of course, they review the footage, right? And they would see us there and everything that had happened. And all of these things were running through my head. Would we have to pay to repair it? Could somebody get hurt? Would somebody get stuck? Would I get stuck with a one and a half year old for hours the next time I got on the elevator? So I did the right thing, and I went to my room, called the front desk, and I confessed. And I have no doubt, and you should have no doubt too, that that extra layer of accountability, let's call it, of the video camera, was just enough to put the right amount of pressure on me to help me do the right thing. This is something that I've learned about myself over the years that I need an extra layer of accountability to often help me do the right thing. So this year when I resolved in the new year to get a bit more exercise and stay healthy and move a bit more during the day, I knew that I would need something to help me stay on task. So I've been wearing this Fitbit since Christmas Day 2015. And as many of you know, some of you might have them. It counts every step I take. It tells me when I haven't moved enough during the day, and it's also confirming for me how little sleep I'm getting each night. But sadly, wearing it has not made me exercise or get moving or keep up with my New Year's resolution. It's just held me accountable just enough to show me that I'm actually failing at that which I committed to. <laughs> So as I reflect on my own New Year's resolutions, I'm also wondering this morning, how are yours going? How are those things that you committed so earnestly to a mere 31 days ago, how are they going? 
Did you build in an extra layer of accountability? Those things that you promised to do to exercise more, to eat healthier, to spend less time in front of a screen and more time face to face, to get off of Facebook, to pray more, to read the Bible more, to meet your goals at work or at school, whatever it was for you, how is it going? At the other services, I asked everyone to raise their hand if they thought they were doing pretty well and no one was willing to. So, friends, I think most of us are in the same boat. And perhaps you're a lot like me. You've let those goals sort of peter off. You've gotten lax on your resolutions. Or perhaps you've laid them aside completely. As I was thinking about this sermon and my own lack to meet my New Year's resolutions, I was contemplating the usefulness of New Year's resolutions, and I stumbled upon an article written by Parker Palmer. Now, Parker is a well-known elder in the Quaker Church. He's a famous American educator, and he's a very well-respected theologian. And, and he says they had sat down to write a regular column that he does for On Being. It's the, um, a spiritual and religious off, offshoot of NPR. And um, he realized that the column was going to be published right in the new year. And so he typed a working title, My New Year's Resolutions, and he says that he was already bored with himself until he looked up and he realized that he had made a typo with one crucial letter. And he had actually typed My New Year's Revolutions. And he thought to himself, that is exactly what I should be writing about. Because the world does not need any more resolutions. The world needs revolutions, he said. Friends, we all know that 2015 had its fair share of struggles, maybe for you personally, certainly for our community, and definitely for the world at large. We are keenly aware that there's this ongoing and massive refugee crisis, that there were plenty of wars last year and acts of terrorism, that there was a lot of political infighting and hate speech, which we see no end to until at least the election is over. The list is long when we start counting the struggles of the year we've just come through. And so I think that Parker is absolutely right. What we need are no more resolutions. We need revolutions. The world doesn't need us to merely count more steps or count more calories or count more minutes of screen time. The world needs us to actually commit our lives to God's revolution. There's a story in the Bible that I love that we've heard this morning about two ordinary everyday people committing their lives to God's revolution. It's the story of Peter and John from Acts. And in the days following Jesus' resurrection, Peter and John and the other disciples that were um, part of this early church spent their time spreading the news of the gospel. And if we look in Acts chapter 3, right before the text that we heard, we see that they have healed a man who was lame from birth right at the gates of the temple. It's called the healing at the beautiful gate. Reverend Lee, um, I was reminded, preached that sermon in the summer, and she rocked it, so you should all remember it, she said. The healing at the beautiful gate. But what happened was, is when they healed this man, they started also preaching about the resurrection and preaching that this man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth had been raised from the dead, which gave us all hope, which meant that we shouldn't fear anymore. 
And of course, that message and this act of healing attracted attention, right? And so crowds began to gather, and eventually they're arrested by the powers that be, the chief priests and the rulers and the elders, and put on trial. And they're asked, and we see this in the text, they're asked, by what power and in whose name did you heal this man? And Peter's response, of course, is one that we still attest to today. He says that there is power in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the risen and resurrected one. And the part of the story that I love the most comes just next. The text says that now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. And when they saw the man who had been cured standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I believe that it's this kind of boldness by ordinary, unassuming people like you, like me, like Peter and like John, that changes the world. We see in the disciples and in the early church that committed themselves to God's revolution that grew so quickly from about a dozen people, right? To then the scriptures say 120, then to 3,000, then to 5,000 in Acts where we are today. And then we know the rest of the story, now nearly 2 billion Christians around the world. In the new year, I increasingly find myself thinking that Parker is correct. The world doesn't need us to make any more New Year's resolutions. The world needs us to give our time and our energy and our resources and our voices to God's revolution in this world. And I want to suggest that this is what that looks like. Two weeks ago, we heard a great sermon by Reverend Byron. Before all the snow fell and the shoveling began, he preached about Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding. And he focused on this Peace from Mary, where she tells the servants who are bringing the water to Jesus to just do what Jesus tells you to do. And Reverend Byron suggested that we were actually also supposed to be about the same thing, to just do what Jesus tells us to do. If Jesus tells you to give more of your time to those living on the margins, then do it. If Jesus nudges you to be a peacemaker at home or at work, then so be it. If Jesus calls you to be an advocate or a preacher or a teacher or a faith-filled parent or a warm face to those who are lonely, then do it. But I would add to that sermon, do it well. Don't just do it for the first month of the year or to win that new trial gym membership runs out or to win you lose the Fitbit or it loses its luster or shininess. Do what God calls you specifically to do, and do it extraordinarily well, with passion, with commitment, and with grace. There's a poem that I've held this week side by side with this scripture from Acts, and it's by Donna Markova, and we'll put it on our blog after church. She writes, I will not die an unlived life. I will not live in fear of falling or catching fire. I choose to inhabit my days, to allow my living to open me, to make me less afraid, more accessible, to loosen my heart until it becomes a wing or a torch or a promise. 
I choose to risk my significance, to live so that which came to me as seed goes to the next as blossom, and that which came to me as blossom goes to the next as fruit. Peter and John and the disciples decided that they would not simply live and die an unlived life. They decided that they would inhabit their days, that they would risk their significance and dedicate their lives to just doing what Jesus told them to do. So friends, I don't know what's happened to your well-intentioned New Year's resolutions. You'll have to hold yourself accountable for those. Maybe you've kept them, maybe you haven't. And I also don't know where you are in terms of doing what Jesus has called you to do. Perhaps you're on that path, perhaps you're off the path, perhaps you're running in the other direction. Or you have no idea this season in your life where God is calling you and you're still discerning and still listening. But I want to suggest that the beauty of living a life with God is that each day is a chance to begin again. And each day is a chance to recommit ourselves to living fully, to being a part of God's revolution. May we all find grace in that. And this week, may we all seek to just do what Jesus told us to do and to do it well. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.